Welcome to the Creators Talk. In this podcast, we want to talk about the future of product development and address all the crazy, innovative creators out there. You will learn more about the manufacturing of tomorrow and how exciting it is to develop products that change the world. Our goal is to change the status quo of mechanical engineering, true to our mission, manufacturing the world loves. Welcome to our third Creators Talk podcast. Today we have a podcast that is based on a webinar, Zot, our Chief Supply Chain Officer, and I held a few weeks ago. This webinar was about developing a hardware product, the face gate approach. The content is based on a white paper that Zot wrote. If you want to download this white paper or our brand new playbook, please go to our website, creatize.com, and just download it. So please enjoy our Creators Talk. So let's get started. Welcome, Zot. Great to Thank see you today. So Appreciate this is Zot. Wrote, wrote uh, the, the white paper. Yeah. Zot is our chief supply chain officer at Creatize. Prior to working at Creatize, Zot worked for, for almost 10 years at Dell in Texas. Then for Apple for 11 years, both in Shanghai and Cupertino. So you've really seen both sides of the world from the manufacturing side and from the developing side, yeah? Uh, and it was actually a very pioneering time, I think, when you were working at uh, Apple. I think you started in 2007, 2008. There was a time when the iMac, the iPhone, and everything else was being started to be produced in China. And I think you mentioned also once an anecdote to me that when you actually started procuring manufacturing parts in China, China uh, Apple was a small customer in, uh, in this uh, Chinese-based contract manufacturing ecosystem, right? That's true. So uh, when I was at Dell, your Wintel, uh, Windows uh, Intel and Intel uh, ecosystem was much bigger. Uh, Apple was a relatively smaller player compared to uh, your uh, Lenovo's and compared to um, to Dell. Um, Dell was the, the largest uh, customer for Foxconn. Uh, but uh, uh, from starting in roughly 2007, 8, 9, and 10, uh, the equation flipped a little bit and Apple became uh, the largest customer to many of the uh, world-renowned um, uh, contract manufacturers that are predominantly, most of them are Taiwanese by origin, such as Foxconn, but they are um, the, the large base of their manufacturing operations is based in uh, mainland China. So, yeah. And you told me at the time that you had to work, you right? You come to the companies and you're working with a team D, like the lowest in the teams, and then you work yourself up, right? <laughs> well, uh, individuals within any company start getting attracted and uh, gravitate towards the biggest, most pre prestigious customers. So as an individual was... Uh, reaching his or her potential uh, and then uh, they would perhaps transfer over to the Apple account. So, you know, I was at Dell from 1998 through 2007. Uh, there were individuals that I had worked with, for example, at Foxconn and Shenzhen, that uh, once I joined Apple within two years, they showed up. They were very good at what they did and they were allocated to the uh, most critical and quote-unquote important customer. So um, that's how things work in most 
uh, work environments. Individuals with highest potential go towards the most critical, most important um, account. Perfect. Yeah. So to finish your introduction, after working at Apple, you joined uh, Uber's new mobility ventures, right? Where you yes. were in charge of the entire supply chain of Jump, the electric scooters. Yeah? Correct, correct. Yeah, after you joined Creatize in the fall, move with your family from California, now to Berlin, joining yes. Creatize in the fall. Yes, yes. So, and so many people may say, you know, what, what's the reason for the move? Uh, <clears throat> my wife is from the Netherlands. Uh, we have... Uh, truly an international family. Um, and uh, my wife is Dutch. We met in Shanghai. Both children are born in Shanghai. So uh, me, after uh, spending most of my life in uh, predominantly in the U.S., I decided uh, how interesting to move to Europe and for my wife to be closer to her family as well and my family. So uh, here we are, exciting Berlin. Welcome, welcome to Europe then. <laughs> so, so let's start with the first question, yeah? Um, we know that building a hardware startup is difficult. Yeah? And you wrote this white paper on product development. That in particular, it's an interest for startups. It, 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 and it's for the entire ecosystem, but especially startups making mistakes is, is a very dangerous uh, part, in it, especially in the, in the very beginning. So let's just talk a little bit about what is the white paper? What is actually the gate-phase approach that you described and why is it so important? So um, the phase-gate approach to building something is essentially, uh, and it's humankind has been doing it from in one way, shape, or form, it is one of the most basic aspects of how humans um, go about developing or making something. Um, you know, if you are going to build something, you build the first type of it, and then you measure it. You understand: does it work? Is this the right way to do it? Should I? Uh, you know, I imagine the first individual who took a pass at making the wheel. Uh, they may have gone through multiple iterations until they reached something that met their needs. Now, those needs may be different for some other population, for some other group, but it's essentially uh, design, uh, build a prototype, uh, check to see if that prototype meets your expectations, and then attempt to make many more of the same uh, with as little as possible variation between the different versions of that thing. So that's essentially the phase gate approach. And, um, you know, uh, and, and, and the important thing is that during those gates, you are not alone sometimes developing it. You have a number of stakeholders, um, you know, uh, Stakeholders at home could be members of your family. If you want to do an extension to your house, you better uh, check with your spouse, make sure he or she is okay with it. If it doesn't uh, affect the children, your so there, you know, with different companies, different environments, you have different stakeholders. You check with them. Look what I did. Is this okay? Yes, it is. Okay. Can I continue? Yes, you can. Well, I'll need some more money. All right. Here's some money, go spend on it. So that's really the phase gate approach. Um, I don't actually, I've learned all of it from, you know, two plus decades of working at Dell, Apple, prior to that at Motorola Semiconductor and IBM. Uh, I've learned it by just by doing and trial and error and 
uh, knowledge uh, in these companies. Uh, they, at least when I was at university, they didn't teach this at university. So mm -hmm. maybe things have changed now. Anyway. That's why you wrote the paper and that's why we're talking about it now. Yeah. That's right. And uh, in particular for the conceptual phase, which is like the first phase that is there. Uh, why is it so important, the question, what am I designing for? Yeah? This yeah. is really, I think, a very, very crucial question because it makes a really big difference with even different parts and different components and different products. Why is it so crucial? Yeah, uh, really good question, Tommy. Thank you. Uh, let's say in, I, it's kind of my go-to prototypical uh, uh product that I go to because it's 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 easy for people to imagine it. Let's say you are designing a drone that, uh, you know, you want to deliver uh, medical supplies, food to uh, areas that don't have access to roads. Uh, it's really important in the concept phase to get together with your board of directors, your shareholders, your investors, and really clearly scope out the, uh, the, the, the envelope of this product. Um, do, do you want to design something that lifts a massive payload, but doesn't necessarily move very quickly? Do you need something that can land potentially on water? Do you need something that has, uh, in case of malfunction, I'm making something up, a, a parachute that deploys. Um, Keeping in mind that that parachute and the mechanism is going to add extra weight to it. So all of these things need to be clearly understood and spelled out between yourself and your stakeholders. The stakeholders are a lot of times marketing. Stakeholders are sales organization. Uh, you know, take... Uh, Take the iPad, for example. Uh, through the years, they have added uh, many new colors. Uh, these colors were uh, driven by um, conversations with the customers, with sales and marketing that say adding different color anodized products is going to increase the uh, sales reach of the product. So it's really critical that in that scope phase, figure out what is this thing and what is it going to do and what is the key focus of what it's going to do. Um, so. so it's very much driven by the customer, right? So whatever customer demand there is. I mean, there's a very famous example. We spoke about this Maytag in the US. Yes. Maytag the whole advertising behind there was you never need to repair a washing machine or dishwasher for Maytag because it was done purely on durability. It might be That's not right. but a full focus on there. Or the example of Panasonic, I mean, it's a rumor, but when the wireless phones and Panasonic came up, they always stopped working after two years. <laughs> there was a belief that there was a two-year trigger in there that after two years, it won't work anymore. So right. I guess these are the specifications that you build around, and that's what's driven by your customers, right? That's right. <laughs> Defined by the customer, but also not just the customer, but also by defined by your company mantra, by your company mission. Um, you know, one would say that um, Apple has a, and has had a different company mission than say a Lenovo or a, uh, or a Dell. Uh, I'm not saying that one is better than the other, but they've had different company missions uh, that have been um, 
reflected by other things. So it's not always the customer. Uh, there's also internal vision. Um, and um, like if you take the uh, uh, initial iPhone without keyboards, no one wanted a phone that doesn't have a keyboard. So they didn't really go to the customer. But it's really important to understand what is the mission of this company. As you brought up, uh, Maytag had uh, a, and you can find it on YouTube, um, that these really comical ads uh, that showed the, that the repair uh, guy, and it's a guy, the repair guy from Maytag is uh, really just sleeping most of the time uh, at his desk because Maytag products never fail. Um, so I highly suggest you go and look at that. Maytag was known for durability. It probably wasn't designed for beauty. It was probably not designed to be light and transportable. It was, this thing is not going to fall apart. So, yeah. yeah. Actually, since you mentioned already, just because of your experience, how can you compare Dell or maybe IBM or Lenovo to Apple, in, in particular for the product development, right? Yeah. I think it was, you mentioned once it was driven a lot by a certain product from Intel. So, um Again, back when I worked at Dell, uh, there was no Chrome. It was Windows operating system and the Intel uh, hardware. And um, there was a coordination between how quickly Intel would come out with a new chipset that supported Windows uh, ecosystem. And Intel would come up with this at, say, they would announce it to the world in and I'm making a time up, November, uh, five, six, seven months prior to that, they would give out the beta versions of these chipset to your Lenovo's, to your Dell's, to your, at the time, Compaq existed, HP, etc. They all, at the minute those chipsets dropped, they all had to rush and have the products ready at um, either direct purchase or Best Buy or whatever store it was. They, they, they all had the, the, the start date. Um, Apple didn't have to com uh, compete or Apple does not have to compete with these other PC makers. So Apple has been able to uh, set its own announcement dates, announcement times, and in some ways act independently of some of these, because Apple has its own operating system. Um, so a, a bit further amount of independence oh, from were the Intel, Windows, Microsoft, uh, Intel, sorry, Intel Windows uh, ecosystem. Yeah. Now with Chrome, I'm, I'm not quite sure how that adds in, but yeah. It changed a bit the world, but at the time, I guess they were Intel-driven innovations. Absolutely. And Apple was still already at the time product-driven innovation, yes. right? So it's really Correct. focused on the product. And we see it also a lot with our customers. We have customers that are very focused on product development. They're product-driven, so they're focused on the product and use us uh, or use Creatize also as their source to, to purchase and to procure. And there's other companies that are so focused on procurement, they have a huge team, they're optimizing that, that's good in that, but it's not the same love for the product as you see in product-developed, product-driven companies, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, some may fault me for saying that, but Dell was uh, 
during the time that I was there was very much a procurement driven company. Uh, I'm not saying it's good or bad. It's just that was the DNA. That's the focus ad, exactly. Yeah. yeah, that's right. That's yeah. right. So another question maybe that came also up with looking at your paper, um, why is the design for manufacturability next to the design for function, right? So important and why should product designer be focusing it quite early on, not just purely on the design and the great functions and the right uh, features the product has, but really also on manufacturability. Right, so along with the DFX X being whatever you're designing for, Again, in case of the Maytag uh, uh, washing machines, uh, designed for durability, um, and um, you know, um, in case of uh, Volvo, <laughs> designed for safety. Uh, there is also the uh, mindset of design along and in parallel for that should be a design for manufacturability. Um, what do I mean by design for manufacturability? Uh, let's say you use fasteners to um, screws, nuts, bolts, etc., to attach two different pieces of a housing together. Um, a designer uh, sometimes can have a choice of purchasing available fasteners. Uh, this is going to make it much easier for their procurement team to go and uh, get those fasteners, purchase those fasteners. But if they decide to come up with a different geometry or a different thread count or different length, something that's not standardized, right off the bat, that's adding complexity that unless it is properly justified, uh, should be questioned. Why are you doing that? They should say that to the designers. Why are you uh, using this non-standard part? Now, a lot of times there's justification for that. But if there is not, all of this needs to be scrutinized in the um, uh, concept uh, and uh, to a large extent in the uh, uh, prototyping phase uh, of an EVT phase of product development. What are you doing? How, how are you procuring these parts? Is this a standard? Uh, uh, motherboard, is this a standard PCB? Is the layer count on your PCB, is that uh, standard or are you making something up? All of this should be uh, heavily scrutinized. And a lot of engineering companies, uh, these are done by, uh, you know, engineering project managements and procurement project managements, etc. Yeah. yeah. So in the conceptual phase, of course, the key things are form, fit, and function, right? And that's essential for this phase. Right. When is that point reached? And when do you really go from that conceptual phase to the prototyping phase? How can you define that? All right. So uh, the first phase, uh, from my personal experience uh, with uh, personal computers and laptops and notebooks is uh, you want to make sure that the functionality exists. You don't care that, so your printed circuit board assembly, your connectors, your ports, your keyboard, you essentially want to make sure that there is a display panel, there is a keyboard, there is a motherboard of sorts, and they are communicating with each other. Um, this is oftentimes put in a chassis 
that is made of acrylic so that the designers can see the lights, the ports turn on and off. There's different sensors, et cetera. So first thing you want to do is I got a new chipset from I'm talking how PCs work. I got a, I just got a new chipset from uh, Intel. I have a CPU from Intel. I have this reference board that I'm going to make. I'm going to put all of this together into inside this. Uh, uh, a lot of times they call it acrylic because the outside is made of acrylic right. and see if it works or not. Once you do that in parallel, you have uh, mechanical design engineers figuring out how to fit all of this uh, into um, uh, how to fit all of this into uh, a nice shell. For example, if you have an Apple laptop, how does all of this uh fit into um, the, 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 the nice shape, the, 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 the nice form that you have. And that becomes really, uh, you know, that's where you start working with moving from functionality to form and then fit of the final product. Okay. Yeah. Well, we have, of course, after the, the prototype phase, then you have other phases, and we can go also, also in details later when there's questions to that. But in particular, what's the, what uh, is uh, striking at a hardware product is you can't just update it, right? If you develop a product, you about to release it, you send it out, and you can't just send a software fixing, a bug fixing uh, program behind it to save it, right? So this is a really big, big uh, concern for companies, especially for startups, because startups, once they've released a product, it's in the market, it might be yeah. the end of the company, right? So right. what, what, what uh, hints or what insights can you give to avoid this to happen? Yeah. Right. So, uh, yeah, nowadays it's uh, uh, OTA over the air uh, up updates to firmware that is uh, all the rage. Uh, um, Tesla oh, no. does it. Tesla does it exactly. Yeah. Tes <laughs> Tesla does it frequently. You wake up, you get in your car, it's a different car. So, um, you know, <laughs> you have a Tesla, so it works for you. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, but with hardware, it's uh, a bit, definitely much more challenging. If you uh, release to the market something that uh, turns out to be defective, you have some uh, ways of correcting that, and they are always expensive. Um, you can do uh, fix or replace on uh, return. A customer comes back and says, um, you know, I have a smartphone and the front glass is dropping off, falling off. Uh, didn't happen at, uh, at Apple. I'm just as an example. Then you have to go replace that or you can have a campaign of replacement and that is also extremely expensive. So you really need to understand what is it that you are designing for and that, you know, you market, let's say, you know, you have an Apple watch, it's going to be water resistant to so many meters underwater. You better be working and designing and testing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of prototypes to ensure that the watch that you sell the public meets what you promised the public. 
You can't you can't fix a, wa a watch that fails when you wash your hand. You can't fix that with over-the-air uh, firmware upgrade. Yeah. So you better be much more conscientious of what you're uh, what you're introducing to the public. Yeah. And maybe out of your experience uh, from from so many years working with companies, where was the really one time? I don't want to use this word. It's a really tough word, right? And, no, I'm just saying it nicely. Something really, really went wrong, and you really panicked, and you had to do anything to do it. And the outcome, in the end, looking in hindsight, you might be smiling about, right? Right. So, uh, you know, I was a member of, I was the lead uh, head of quality for uh, uh, Apple, um, Apple's uh, uh, audio products, Apple branded audio products. And when the HomePod was coming out and uh, maybe you tell me you've heard me tell this story before, there was a certain number of them that when they were going through the final customer Uh, tests uh, at the factory in China, uh, we were dete detecting a um, low level, uh, like a buzzing sound. And um, we were bringing the, uh, bringing the, uh, uh, the units, uh, the HomePods back to the US, testing them. We couldn't duplicate the error. Like whatever we did, it was impossible to duplicate the error. Uh, I got on a plane, flew to China, and um, and I said, take me, please, to where this is happening, the final test lab. This test, there, there's these quiet booths uh, with foam inside where it really isolates sound. Um, and once I went in there and I asked them to turn it on and start listening to it, uh, the HomePod, they set it on this granite table to really isolate any kind of sound that comes from um, anywhere else in this room. So all, hear, so all you hear is the sound of um, the speaker. And, and as I leaned in to uh, listen to it, And I put my elbow on the granite table. The granite table was built on this welded table that they put the granite on it. The table was a rocker. It wasn't <laughs> stable. It wasn't sitting on the floor correctly. So when you went into really low um, base output, the whole thing would make the table start vibrating. And we backtracked our failures, and they had all come out of that one specific booth. Uh, it could have been a very costly um, issue. It could have been a very uh, costly um, uh, and, and, uh, chase after this. Uh, we got lucky, you know. Um, but uh, I can imagine if you have a huge recall and everything. I mean, that's yeah. like. You send all the teams their money and everything to do that, and it turns out to be a failure on another failure, right? It's not a right. big failure. Right. It was such a very, very small percentage of the entire yeah. output that, we, and it was very hard to detect. Some of the things you do is fix on fail or replace yeah. on failure. A customer brings it in, you take it in, and um, you you replace it. So, yeah. yeah. Cool. So we had about half an hour just to also kind of 
get to understand where also critters can help out in this phase. I mean, typically in the prototyping phase, that's where we can support very well. We have an amazing and big access to uh, great suppliers uh, for prototyping part, but of course in the engineering and validation and testing stage, where you already um, look for tools, new parts um, um, that have to be designed. That's something where we get also very early involved. However, we can also get involved, and we are often also getting involved in the conceptual phase, because there we can take certain influence on pricing. We can see where the product is going. It helps development teams to see where the price is going, where they can optimize, and of course, the manufacturability, design for manufacture, to help already in a very early stage not to go in a certain direction, which like often then doesn't allow anyone to change at that part anymore. Yeah? Right. So this is where we can really offer hardware startups and product designers to focus on their product, we ultimately render it unnecessary to build up a supply chain network to procure personnel. And of course, any startup is scarce on, on resources and capital help to put the money at the right place and not at building up this big, big network. So thank you, Zod, at this stage. So we one, would one, one, one thing, uh, if, if I may, one thing I would like to add to that is that a startup that wants to uh, make a... Uh, say an aluminum chassis for their uh, for their uh, drone that I was talking about. Um, not only do they have to find a supplier uh, to do this for them, like build a dozen housing for the drone, but in addition to that, they need to be able to get the attention of the right individuals at that supplier uh, to make sure that the uh, key quality metrics are met because, uh, you know, a small customer is not going to be able to get as much attention from the supplier. We, we bundle a bunch of orders and we have, uh, uh, you know, a few dozen really key suppliers who make sure that we get a quality part because they have one creatized placing a lot of orders with them that a small innovator is not going to be able to command that type of attention by themselves. Yeah, you mentioned it's relevance. Be yes. relevant at the supplier level. And as a new startup, everybody knows the pain to go through to build up a network, to talk to suppliers, to become a relevant partner at that supplier. It takes yes. time and volume, of course, which we have, and which we have the network for. So that really helps particular startup, uh, um, hardware startups, to get there. Okay, so we have one question here. The question is thoughts on autonomous vehicle production, delivery and challenges. <laughs> Where do you see any challenges there? I guess it's the product as any other product. So I'll let you answer that, Thomas. You... <laughs> yeah. Um... I mean, the, the example you gave are very general because it applies to all kinds of products, right? So yeah. it doesn't really uh, apply on technology right. behind there. Yeah? Right. Well, uh, with, with autonomous vehicle, I think um, depending on external interference, if you're driving through West Texas, for those of you who know West Texas, you know what I'm saying, and those who don't, you should go. Um, look at a, a picture of a road in West Texas. It is very straight and very flat. Uh, autonomous driving is not going to be challenging. Um, but uh, if you're going to do autonomous driving through San Francisco, uh, that's going to be much more challenging. Um, so, 
but here also the phase gate process. So we had a session, a launchpad, a, a few months ago in February with Armin Müller, who was at uh, Daimler and Porsche, and, and he showed the example of developing the, the anti-skidding technology, right? So, yes, the team had to really develop something because it's life-threatening, so if it doesn't work, people get killed. On the other hand, they had to still use Pareto in order to get it certain functions working, certain not working, just because speed is also of essence. So you have to really find the middle way, although it belongs about it's part of a life endangering technology behind that, right? Yes. Exactly. Perfect. So we have one question here also coming up. What are the most failures that product development teams can do? What is a typical thing that is like that you see typically done wrong? Uh, I think uh, the the biggest failure would be not learning from that failure and adjusting the scope of the product. So um, if and and allowing scope creep. So one, uh, what is scope creep? It's you design, a, come up with a product idea, the concept, and then stakeholders come and say, "Yeah, you design a drone that flies for an hour." Uh, I want you to design something that goes for 10 hours. And you say, okay, because this stakeholder is a VP and you want to endear yourself um, or someone else comes and asks. These uh, conflicting demands, if they drive the product design team, they are going to fail. So early on, they need to get all the stakeholders in a room uh, and uh, have a conversation with them. One of our uh, um, acquaintances, hopefully we'll get to work with them, is designing and building a one-person drone uh, for short distances, commuting, say, from uh, a downtown hub to the airport. Um, and on the first page of this product, of this uh, on their web page, is it's not going to fly. The maximum it's going to fly is 30 minutes. Uh, it's going to carry one person. Uh, it is going to uh, weigh something like 250 kilos. So they very clearly spell out exactly what is the mission and parameters of this product. If the product design team cannot nail this down as early as possible, they are bound to fail. Yeah, you mentioned one interesting uh, aspect, and it happens also a lot in software development. Yeah? And that's why the Scrum method was also introduced, is that uh, somebody comes in and says, we need this feature very urgently, our customer needs it, and the next one comes in and says, we need that feature. And so everybody runs back and forth, left and right, and yet nothing comes properly out. Based on your experience also in the hardware, which is even more rigid, right? You still, you have this influence, like, I want to extend the flight range for uh, X uh, percent. I right. want to reduce or increase the weight. How do you manage that, that it is not conflicting, A, and B, you don't lose speed and agility on developing a product? It's, it's negotiation, right? It's, um, it, it, at the end of the day, who's the strongest stakeholder, who is the founder, who is, uh, you know, footing the bill for all this extended, you know, studying, right? Um, yeah, it's... There's no clear answer who uh, there's no clear answer who defines the scope. For example, this company that we're talking about that I was talking about, uh, 
they could have arbitrarily decided that it will carry two people plus their luggage. They chose not to for the first iteration. That was their choice. They went to seed founders and Series A founders and said, we're going to build this. Are you okay with it? And they were able to drum up enough cash and support to go with that vision. They could have alternatively, and there's many companies uh, that are going for much larger vehicles. Hmm. That's just, the thing is, once you start on that path, you need to understand that any major deviation, especially for hardware, is very expensive. Yeah. Is there, um, the question also came up in the past, is there a difference between developing a new product or improving a product in the phase gate process? Is there a different approach to it? Are there certain shortcuts you can take or what is your... Uh, right. So as you, as you go to, you know, the first version of everything is much more difficult. So uh, I was the lead, I was the head of quality uh, for uh, the enclosure of the first iPad. And the first iPad was a um, stamped and then secondary machined uh, part. Uh, then the second one was a different iteration. As you go from iPad 1 to the second version to the third version, it becomes easier. Uh, managing the different antenna in it becomes easier. The first one is obviously always more difficult. The second, third, fourth iterations should become dramatically easier, shorter time cycle to get to it, uh, and more predictable ramps. Okay. Yeah. Saying that, that, I assume the conceptual phase as well as the prototyping phase in the first generation product are much longer. For and then sure. after that, that's based on, on a similar product. Yeah. For, for sure, right. Yeah. And, and <laughs> one of the errors could be underestimating the demand. So uh, the, uh, the earpod, uh, the Apple's uh, white earpods, they, you know, we, we dramatically underestimated the demand for it. It took two, three years to be able to catch up with the, with the demand. So, um, yeah. I think it needed a German company, Vata, to come up with the right battery that it would work, right? That's what I read <laughs> <about> somewhere. <laughs> Perfect. We have one more question here. Uh, if anyone here, but also uh, if you don't know, uh, if this phase gate process is taught at school or university, and if there's a, it's part of a curriculum, because it was not part of his curriculum as a, as a student. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. Maybe with some MBA programs. Uh, I, I'm, now I'm super curious myself to go see if there's any curriculum. Uh, MIT has a master's in operations research or, or operations. I wonder if they uh, touch up on that. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. Maybe you have to become professors, you know, you have to start a lecturer, you know, if you start from doing it online to do it in classrooms and... Uh, your next career. There you go. Long, long holidays, I can go skiing. And of course, you have the chance to see Zod again and many, many other speakers. It's going to be a big, big event uh, for hardware startups. We fully focus on hardware startups on June 10. We get big insights for startups. We get uh, great insights from uh, the founders of uh, Volocopter, the first financing, how they develop this product. This is a real hardware product driven very much by software. So it's always the driver software, but the hardware behind it is always essential because in the end, we will always have hardware around us. No matter how many platforms we have, how many uh, digital products we will have, we'll always have interaction between 
us as humans in some physical parts, being a computer, being a microphone, being a phone, or bring a device to lift us or to drive us somewhere. So we look forward for you to join us on June 10th. It's going to be a very, very big event. Thank you that you joined today. Thank you, Zot, for your really great insights. So this is the end of our podcast. Again, if you want to know more about the FaceGate approach and how to drastically reduce the time to develop hardware products, please visit our website at creatize.com and download either our white paper or our playbook. I hope you enjoyed the podcast today from our series, Creators Talk. Thank you for tuning in. To stay tuned for the next episode, subscribe to our podcast or follow us on creatize.com.